0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELAC K25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860M 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. All right, we're bringing you a best of this week. We're kind of taking it easy with our families a little bit. Well, uh, we will go back, we'll have brand new shows to start the new year starting next week. This week, we're going to revisit first an interview that we did looking at the rise of Michael Jordan, but not necessarily from his position on the basketball court, but from his position as a brand and how he was and was not marketed and where he chose to decide to engage and where he decided to stay out of things. So let's go to that now and then we'll have more. Let's take a few minutes and talk with sports historian, Georgia Tech professor, and author of the book *Jumpman: The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan*, Johnny Smith. Johnny, congrats on the book, and thanks for giving us some time to talk about it.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Glad to be here. All right. So,
0: so this book isn't really a biography. It's it's kind of about the the making and the meaning of of Michael Jordan. You're you're somebody who's written about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Somebody who's written about Muhammad Ali. Why did you decide to tell this version of Michael Jordan's story now?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in the 1980s and 1990s. Major Michael Jordan fan, fan of Chicago Bulls. You know, I was one of those kids who wanted to be like Mike. Um, And so his his career in many ways shaped my youth. Like a lot of kids growing up in the Chicagoland area. Oh, okay, great. I'm not and, from
0: Chicagoland, but he shaped my youth.
1: Yeah, but, sure. Except
2: the except for the part where I had Jason jumps.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't have that type of influence on me. But I mean, I remember going to the Jordan Barkley games at the Spectrum when they battled in the playoffs in '90. I mean that that's a memory that I have with my dad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, you know, for me, he he's there's always he's always been a presence in my life. Well, fast forward, I became an academic historian. And as you said, I've I've written about several sports icons, many of them black athletes like Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and others. And for me as a historian, I've always been interested in how these famous black sports figures have shaped the uh, black freedom struggle. You know, how did race change the way that they saw their role in relation not just to sports, but to American culture? So as someone who grew up with uh, Jordan being this great presence in my life, I thought, you know, if you follow um, the works of a lot of journalists who've written about Jordan or even you watch The Last Dance, race is not really at the forefront of the conversation. So I wanted to better understand how race shaped the way that Jordan saw himself, how he presented himself in the public as an endorser for Nike and McDonald's and Chevrolet and Coca-Cola and these other companies. But also how race in the 1980s and 1990s shaped the way that we as the public, uh, white Americans, black Americans, Americans of all different races and ethnicities, saw Jordan. And I think there's a pivotal moment. The book follows this period between 1990 and 1991. And I think it's a crucial period in his life and career for two reasons. Number one, of course, that's the season the Bulls pursue their first championship. Jordan and the Bulls, they, they knock out Magic Johnson and the Lakers in the NBA Finals. It's the most watched NBA finals in history up until that time. More than 70 countries are tuned in in this satellite age. Hundreds of millions of people around the world are watching Jordan. And it's expanding the audience for MJ and for the NBA. And there's going to be consequences for him that I can talk about later. The other thing that's happening in 1991 after those finals is Gatorade launches the Be Like Mike Gatorade campaign. And if you watch that commercial closely, I think there's two crucial storylines that are emerging. You see Jordan surrounded by kids, kids like us, you know, white kids, black kids, boys and girls. And the commercial is positioning basketball as America's game, as the democratic sport that is inclusive, that it brings all kinds of kids from backgrounds onto the court, and it's Jordan who brings them there. Jordan is positioned as this unifying force, the racial unifier. And in studying Jordan's career particularly in this period what I came to see is that many Americans saw him as this great American hero who supposedly transcended race. But what I argue in the book is that this is part of the Jordan mythology. This young man who grows up in the South, who is confronted with racism, um, is harassed by you know white kids who hurled the N-word at him, could never truly transcend race. In fact, it's just the opposite. His experiences that he encounters in the south shaped the way that he saw sports. He thought that sports was going to be the ticket to get out of the south, to get out of Wilmington in the late 1970s. He internalized these messages and thought that well sports is this one space where I can um I won't be denied, you know that kids can't tell me that I'm less than or that I'm inferior because of the color of my skin. And so I want to explore that story, which is largely missing, I think, from the narratives that you see in The Last Dance.
2: So let's take a step back to 1984. You talk about in your book, 1984 and the Olympics and how that brought Michael Jordan into our our vision. Can you talk about how important the 1984 Olympics were to Michael Jordan and the Michael Jordan that we later come to know?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the 84 Olympics were hosted here in the United States in Los Angeles, and it was celebrated as this great patriotic moment. Remember, this is the Cold War. It's the rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviets who refused to participate in the 84 Summer Games. And Jordan appears on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He is the face of Team USA. And it's his, his story that is seen as an American story. You know, he is the grandson of sharecroppers. He comes from this middle-class Southern Christian family. And so I think that that imagery that is produced, that that's the moment when he starts to be described by sports writers as an American hero. And I think that's interesting because he's not described as a black American hero. He's being described as an American hero. And this is an age in which um, political pundits, particularly more conservative Americans in the age of Reagan, they emphasize this idea of colorblindness, that race should not matter anymore. And even Jordan himself, as I, I write in the first chapter of the book, he embraces this idea. He tells reporters time and time again, you know, I don't want people to think of Michael Jordan as a black man. I want them to see him as a person. And he would say things like, you know, I don't see you for your color, you know, I see you as a person. Now, however well-intentioned colorblindness may be, it is a problematic concept in the sense that the denial of race makes it a lot easier to deny racism. The denial of race makes it a lot easier for Jordan not to talk about race and not to remind people that he has had these experiences with racism that shaped the way that he presents himself to the public. But of course, embracing colorblindness that's part of David Stern's uh, vision as well for the NBA. Because if you remember, in the in, from the late 70s to the early 1980s, critics would say that the league was, quote unquote, too black. And the black players were selfish and they were greedy in this age of free agency. And that re- there were these reports that they were using cocaine on just about every roster. You know, Jordan tells the famous story that when he was a rookie in 1984, the team goes to an exhibition game in Peoria, Illinois and he's looking for his teammates in the, in the hotel and he knocks on the door and the door opens and he sees the white lines on a table and he you know sprints out of there because he doesn't want to get caught up in that scene. Well, a lot of folks, when he told that story in The Last Dance, they thought, oh, this is the first time he's telling the story. It's not true. In the late 80s, he told the story as part of the Just Say No campaign that was organized by the Reagan uh, administration. And it was important because that was where Jordan is saying that I'm not like them, you know. And this is my point: that racial transcendence is less about who you are than who you are not. Right? He's positioning himself to be someone who is safe and non-threatening, and therefore that makes him someone who is uh, who could be a role model, someone that you could look up to, regardless if you're black or white, because he was wholesome and he was a man of character. And those values mattered, particularly in the 1980s as the NBA is trying to rehabilitate its image.
0: I found it interesting that um, you noted that Jordan didn't differentiate, like he didn't want to focus on communities. It was just everybody should say no, not the black community should say no. And that fit into this image that they were trying to sell. And you, you go into the role of David Falk doing that. He thought Jordan gained unbelievable exposure, but some of the stats were amazing I think you had 5% of the league's 280 players were in national or TV print ads at the time. And the general feeling was they weren't marketable. Can you talk about Fox approach where where Nike was sort of the linchpin for that and pushing for the individual personality and the shoe line, which was different than the way that black athletes had been marketed previously?
1: Yeah, the Nike deal is is crucial. And you won't learn about this story in the motion picture air (laughs) um, where we don't even see Michael's face. But um, David Falk, I think, was pretty sharp in understanding that he needed to, to sign a deal with Michael that was authentic. He always talked about authenticity, that it made the most sense for Jordan first to sign with a shoe manufacturer for a basketball shoe because he was a basketball player he's going to be selling basketball shoes. Same thing that he signed a deal with. I think it was Wilson was his basketball, the company that signed Jordan. Um, authenticity, that's the key. Now, when Falk is trying to land this deal, keep in mind that in the sneaker endorsement business, Converse really has the biggest stars under contract. Magic Johnson, Julius Irving, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas. Um, but they're not really highlighting them in individual campaigns. They all wear the same shoe, just in different colorways. So there was not this um, effort to focus on a singular athlete. But Phil Knight looks at the numbers and what he's paying all sorts of NBA players just to wear Nike shoes, no campaigns around, around these guys. And he thinks, there's no return for me. Why am I paying dozens of NBA players to wear Nike shoes, it's not helping us with sales. Nike is struggling financially. So um, there's a meeting of of minds at Nike to build a campaign around a single individual. And and the future of sports is gonna be all about the the cult of personality, building a movement around heroes. And I think that's what's really interesting about this period in the mid eighties because Nike and Phil Knight and David Stern in the NBA they have the same vision for marketing. They want to build their brands around individual heroes, creating heroes. And one of the things I tell my students about heroes, a cultural heroes, they serve a, a social function or a, a social purpose. And that is their models to be emulated. And I think this is why our conversation around race is so important in MJ. It's that you know he becomes the template that if you wanna land these endorsement deals, You can't be seen as militant. You can't be seen as outspoken. Um, If you want to be a crossover star uh, in the world of sports and entertainment, like an Eddie Murphy or a Whitney Houston or Bill Cosby during this era, well, you have to distance yourself then from these conversations. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that I mentioned the book, there's very few black sports agents. There was a perception that black agents did not have access to corporate america they couldn't land these deals but david falk was able to make this deal with nike of course it becomes an unprecedented deal and then he's able to build on that and he makes this case that uh to mcdonald's and coca-cola and chevrolet that you you three companies you're going to benefit from nike because nike's going to put michael jordan on television he's going to be seen all across america and you can draft off of that visibility and so that enhances jordan's Um, marketability for those other companies who didn't have to take as much risk since Nike was already carrying so much risk. But of course, in the end, it pays off for all those companies. And for for Falk, really what he likes about Coca-Cola and McDonald's in particular, and Nike, they're all companies that are exporting products overseas. And that's also something that's really important in understanding the Jordan phenomenon is that the NBA and those companies, they're all becoming international. In the satellite age um, and in, in the cable age, they're going to be reaching more and more viewers from the late 80s into the early 90s.
2: You know, one of the characters that was around Michael Jordan in, in during his career is Jerry Krause. And you talked about the commonality that they found with each other, namely Jerry Krauss experiencing anti-Semitism as, and Michael Jordan experiencing racism, Can you talk about that relationship which also seems very complex?
1: Yeah? Yeah, boy, you know, the Kraus story is fascinating to me. When I was researching his background, you know I learned that he had grown up in Chicago. Um, he desperately wanted to become a somebody. You know, he goes on to be a scout in both basketball and baseball and eventually becomes general manager of the Bulls, hired by Jerry Reinsdorf at a time when the sports writers in Chicago, I thought, you know, Jerry Krause, he had already been the GM actually once for the Bulls. People forget this. And it was a total disaster. Um, But this is someone who I think was terribly insecure. And I think he was picked on as a kid and he was picked on as an adult. He was always kind of seen by the the, the beat writers as, uh, you know, like the unathletic kid who follows the jocks around the high school. And that kind of reputation followed him, even when he's a a grown adult as the general manager of the Bulls. And, you know, when Krause would meet with potential draft picks or free agents, black players, he'd say, well, I can relate uh, because I've experienced discrimination as a Jewish kid growing up in Chicago which undoubtedly he did you know, experience anti-Semitism. However, one story that came up was a, a profile written by Rick Tellender in, in Sports Illustrated where um, Krauss is quoted basically saying that he experienced horrific anti-Semitism in his high school. Well, after some of his former classmates at his high school read this profile, uh, Jewish classmates, they wrote a letter to the editor and said, you know, Jerry Krauss is exaggerating. As fellow Jews in our high school, we had very good um, relationships to other kids. There was not rampant anti-Semitism in our school, and it raises all these questions that I wish, you know, we could ask Jerry Krause if he was with us today. You know, well, why exaggerate? No, no doubt that I'm sure he encountered anti-Semitism at some point, but you know, where does that come from? And I, I suspect there's some trauma in his youth that never goes away. There's just this void he wants to fill, and he talks about. How you know he wants to win a championship for his dad? That's a really big thing for him. He's very connected to his father. So when Jordan comes to the Bulls and Krause is the GM, there's the famous story that in 1986, Jordan has the broken foot and he's ready to go. And so he's playing these exhibition games back in Chapel Hill um, with college players. And Krause finds out and he's you know pissed. So there's this heated meeting between uh Kraus and Reinsdorf on one side of the table and Jordan on the other side with David Falk and at one point Krauss says to Jordan you know you can't do whatever you want your bull's property now and when Jordan hears this your bull's property now you belong to us these white executives that crossed the line for Jordan I think and, and it, it was deeply offensive and insulting And I try to contextualize that story to remind readers about the history of white executives in sports, you know, exploiting African-American athletes, and that that tension never really goes away, even though we have integration in the 50s and 60s, and we have these collective bargaining agreements, and, and Black players led by Oscar Robertson had secured free agency. There's still a tension there that you work for us. It's not a partnership. But the thing I want to point out about Jordan is that this was someone who was deeply driven to assert his independence. And I think we see that in a lot of ways. He's not going to listen to Jerry Krause. He's going to maintain autonomy over his body. He believes that he's going to control his destiny. And he asserts himself in that moment. And he never forgives Jerry Krause. As we all know, Jordan will will hang on to slights, real or imagined, forever forever and he hangs on to that one um and so i think it's important for readers to understand again that there's this underlying racial tension there i think between krauss and jordan that hasn't been fully acknowledged
0: earlier in the interview you mentioned the time between 90 and 91 and and the growth with be like my campaign and the the finals and dueling with magic he also had to deal with some social and political ramifications in that time uh as I ran the cover on the sneaker murders in inner cities um he was asked to endorse in the north carolina senate race can you talk about his struggle in that time period to just keep being looked at as a person as opposed to a black person when it came to these circumstances
1: yeah i think you know for all the um statements about him transcending race we find that in these two stories that you're raising here, that that's not really possible for Michael Jordan. In 1990, even before Sports Illustrator runs the the cover story, uh, your sneakers or your life with, you know, someone holding a gun and grabbing these Air Jordan sneakers. um, The New York Post, uh, Phil Mushnick, uh, who's a columnist, wrote this story about how Spike Lee and Michael Jordan were responsible from marketing uh, in their Nike commercials directly to inner city black kids who couldn't afford these Air Jordan sneakers. And they were to blame for all these supposed muggings and killings over Nike shoes. And it's really a fascinating story to think about on a number of levels, I think. The first question that comes to my mind as a historian is okay, is this true? Were there all these muggings taking place? You know, okay, what's the evidence for this? So two things I did in in trying to recreate this moment in doing my research. One is I used several newspaper databases and did comprehensive searches, looking for as many articles as I could to document this supposed epidemic. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find evidence that confirmed what Mushnik was telling his readers. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't any muggings over sneakers in the cities and starter jackets. Undoubtedly, there were cases and they occurred. We know some occurred in the inner city. But the other problem I found is that um, Richard Lapchick, at that time, was the director of the Sports and Society Institute at Northeastern University. He was asked this question uh, in 1990. You know, how many of these so-called sneaker murders have there been? And he found between 1983 and 1990, only eight cases where there was a murder linked to a sneaker robbery. And so this gives me pause to think about, okay, well, why the exaggeration? Why the hysteria? Well, I think we have to understand what else is going on in inner cities at that time. There is this growing fear of this um, supposed phenomenon of black on black crime. Uh, And that the inner cities are out of control and there's these black youths who are running these violent gangs. And the latest thing that they want It's not cars, it's these Air Jordan sneakers that have become these valuable totems of status. And so Jordan gets crossed up in this. He's asked about it. He's unprepared to deal with it. He doesn't know what to say. Um, There's a legitimate case that he hears about where, in fact, in uh, Maryland, a teenager, a black teenager shot and killed another teenager and took his shoes. And that's the one that's featured in the Sports Illustrated story. But there's this incredible hysteria that takes place. And Jordan, I think, realizes that it's not enough for him just to set examples and be the role model. That's not that's not gonna be enough. He's gonna have to really think about these issues that are happening in society. But the reality is he doesn't wanna deal with them. Later that summer in 1990, Jesse Jackson, who at that time uh, was the head of a, a civil rights group in Chicago, Jordan's hometown, uh, called Operation Push. Well, Jesse Jackson organized a boycott of Nike, saying, "Look, Nike has all these black endorsers like Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, but they don't have many black executives. They don't have black vice presidents, and they don't advertise in in um, black magazines like Ebony and Jet or broadcast on on BET. You know, so Michael, you know, you need to join us and in, in, in push for change. Michael doesn't want any part of that either." And so in the summer of 1990, he basically stops talking about these issues. He goes abroad on this Nike tour with Sonny Vaccaro and he puts on these basketball exhibitions for troops serving in Europe. And I think, you know, he really just hoped that this would go away. And by the time he shows up again in the public, it's um, the preseason for the Bulls in 1990. And that sort of becomes what he does, he retreats into himself. He's not comfortable in this role. Same thing with the Harvey Gantt. His mom wanted him to campaign for Gantt, donate to Gantt's election campaign in in North Carolina. Jordan refuses. And I think, you know, it's easy to say that um, Jordan was simply protecting his brand. Some people will make that argument, but I actually think that there's more to it than that. I think that Jordan saw himself as part of a generation That didn't prioritize protests that for him his mindset was my job is to make breakthroughs in other spaces namely corporate america and if i can break through in corporate america and set good examples and defy these stereotypes well then i'm contributing to racial progress in that way and i think that was his mentality that he's focusing on certain aspirations and, and shattering barriers in different ways. You know, being a voice, being a leader, he says, that's not who I am. In fact, in 1992, after the L.A. uprising, you know, the, the protests and, and the riots that take place there in response to the LAPD officers being exonerated for beating Rodney King, you know, Jordan is asked about this and he says, I'm not a leader. You know, I, this is not something for me to talk about magic johnson wasn't saying anything either you know black stars in that time they did not see themselves as voices for social change that was not their role at least not the role they embraced look we
2: could talk to you all day but we also know how busy you are because of how popular this book is so i'm going to ask you a two-part question and we only have about a minute left so you can get to your next uh interview um the role of the medal of freedom in michael jordan's life and culminate. what did that mean and and the last big question is to you having written the book and done the studies what's
1: bigger michael jordan the person the player or the brand okay all right so i'll try to answer these concisely which i'm not good at um the medal from barack obama you can see what it means to him because it moves him to tears you know it's an incredible moment and if you hear uh how jordan is introduced it's about how he affected cultural change. And what's interesting is that Barack Obama gave the Medal of Freedom to two uh, black basketball players. I think I think Kareem was in the same year as Jordan. I had, you have to double check, but I know he, Obama also gave one to Kareem. But when he describes Kareem, he talks about how Kareem was a social conscience of America, that he took these important stands. So Barack Obama chooses these two basketball legends, gives them the Medal of Freedom for very different reasons two men who represent very different eras. And of course, Kareem was one of those critics of Michael for being silent when it came to racism. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating story that I try to explore sort of the relationship between Jordan and Obama in the epilogue. And of course, remember too, Obama is come has arrived in Chicago when Jordan has arrived in Chicago. And so Chicago is really a defining place for both of them
0: yeah, Obama Um, couldn't afford the tickets to go to the bulls game
1: yeah (laughs) yeah I mean watching
0: him and then he's giving him the medal of freedom at the White House
1: I know it's a it's a great story it's a fantastic story and of course Obama of course uh, is a basketball enthusiast a big part of his life and the way that he saw race through basketball that the basketball court in Hawaii where he grew up was a place where he felt like he belonged that his skin color wouldn't matter I digress to your other question um i would say the brand uh is more important than jordan the person today and here's why i would say that you look around the world the jumpman logo is still everywhere you know you go to china you go to parts of europe uh the jumpman logo people are still buying air jordans and jumpman brand gear and apparel but i don't think that there's this clamoring still to see michael jordan or to hear from michael jordan and we're not going to get that that brand is what allowed him to build enormous wealth to become the first nba player turned owner who just sold his team his majority stake of the charlotte hornets for an estimated three billion dollars i think the brand more than the man made that um Because the man doesn't really give us a whole lot of himself. That's the mystique that I talk about in the book. And if you watch The Last Dance, he doesn't want to let us into his private world. We don't learn about, you know, what it was like in his home when he's playing for the Bulls. We don't see Juanita. We don't see his kids. We see his dad, of course, and his mom in the early part of the story. But, you know, he doesn't let us into his private space. And Air, the motion picture, Air. You know, it 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 reinforces that theme. He's not even in the movie. We just get the back of his head. You know, you I, can't tell me that's not also intentional.
0: How you know the brand is big that you don't even have to show the guy. You just show the back of his head. Exactly it's for a movie. The book, is, <laughs> the book is Jump Man: The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. Uh, you should get it. You absolutely will not regret it. Johnny, thanks so much for the time and best of luck with the book.
1: Oh, great to meet you both. I really enjoyed talking to you.
2: Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and local 825 are ready to get to work. This is Lou Nolan, the Voice of the Flyers, and you're listening to the Heart of Sports. With Jason Springer
0: and Jeff Cohen. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us after that first interview and through the break. Over the summer, the phenomenon known as the Savannah Bananas came through here and played in Trenton at the Thunder Stadium. Uh, We got a chance to talk to one of their coaches uh, about what's going on and, and how they have really risen to where they are. Listen to the interview and then we'll talk more. Jeff, let's keep the fun baseball talk going. Uh, a special night the other night in, in Trenton, right uh, nearby next door for us. Great to be joined by Director of Baseball Operations and Associate Coach for the Savannah Bananas. Coach Viro, as he said, to introduce himself, Adam And How are you doing today, Adam?
3: Oh, phenomenal. Thanks for having me on. Super excited uh, to be back in the Northeast where I live in the off season and uh ready to you know get in get after it with you guys
0: you guys played in trenton the other night Uh, i caught a little bit of the youtube broadcast saw a bunch of people's posts on social media It looked like an amazing night for what said on the broadcast was your 100th banana ball game to be played so talk to our listeners who haven't seen you about banana ball and how it went in Trenton.
3: yeah so first off you know banana ball is uh the Savannah Bananas version of, of baseball. We have injected some exciting rules to, to speed up the game and, and make it exciting every single turn of the way. Um, what to expect at a banana ball game. Uh, you're gonna see a lot of dancing. You're gonna you're gonna see some great baseball. You're gonna see some trick plays. Uh, you'll probably have the best time that you've ever had at a baseball field. Uh, ESPN has called us the greatest uh, show in sports. And that's what we really strive to uh, every single show is to 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 create never forget moments and, and do things on a baseball field that people have never seen, but more importantly, uh, make a positive impact and make people laugh and smile and bring families together. And uh, Trenton really turned out last night. We had a sold out show. Uh, people started lining up at one o'clock for gates open at five thirty. Uh, we had a, we had a great time, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think they did too.
2: I mean, look, sports is about winning, but it's also about having fun. You mentioned the trick plays. How do those come about? Tell us about a couple of the trick plays and is it something that you work on or does it something that just happens or do you plan to do it at a certain point during your game?
3: Well, all of our games are real. Nothing's scripted once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand and and, and they hit it. So you never know when you're going to have an opportunity for a trick play. But trick plays are a very important part of banana ball. Uh, We want to do something different than traditional baseball, which I grew up loving and so many of our fans love traditional baseball. But Uh, The trick plays was something that we started really working on last summer and um, made it a focal point during all of our training sessions for guys to try new things. Um, Our guys are very talented baseball players and we know they can make the routine play. So let's try something a little bit different. Let's get out of our comfort zone and really work on some of these things. So one of our most famous uh, trick plays is DR Meadows. He's our center fielder. he has landed multiple backflip catches while he's catching the ball midair, landing on his feet. He's been the Sports Center top ten uh, numerous times. Uh, it's it's like lightning hits when 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 he catches it. Um, leading to uh, Ryan Cox, he's our glove magician. He's our shortstop. He has um, in excess of a hundred trick plays thus far in our tour. And um, you know what we're learning is some of these trick plays and these variations that these, these players are are, are maneuvering are a lot quicker and more natural than your traditional kind of ground ball that we were, we were taught. So um, what we're seeing is that um, our players are able to they're, they're becoming routine for them. And we're also seeing little kids starting to try them. And, and I know little leagues and uh, travel baseball coaches across the country are, are probably uh, horrified. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, our, our goal is to bring fun back into the game. And um, for, for mostly for the youth, because um, travel baseball has really sucked a lot of that kind of energy and happiness out of the game. And uh, so, it, you know, those trick plays really, really bring some excitement, but, but happiness and joy to our fans as well. Hey, so the,
2: you, you just mentioned that the travel baseball, as somebody who coached travel baseball for half a decade, like I could picture it wouldn't have been me, but I could picture so many coaches just going bananas. I didn't mean to use the word bananas, but it works here. Going bananas at the thought of their kid coming out to see you and then coming to before a tournament and trying a trick play. Have, have you gotten that from any of these coaches?
3: We get calls weekly from <laughs> our peers and, and people that we've coached with. And they say, man our kids love you, but geez, they're, they're, they're trying to make these trick plays and it's driving us nuts. And and that's, that's fine. That means that we're having some sort of impact. And um, what we always tell the kids whenever we meet with them is when you see somebody land a trick play on the field, it didn't just happen. It's just like every skill that you have to develop. You got to practice and you got to practice it. So um, yeah, I coached uh, travel baseball for 10 years in New York city. And so if, if, if I was on that side of the fence, not, not involved with the bananas, and one of my players came and tried to land a trick play in a game and, and he botched it, yeah, I'd probably have a problem with that because that's not going to fly in, in high school or, or college. But, um, yeah, I tell you what, I have evidence that some of these transfers are a lot quicker than the traditional route that, that we that we have been teaching for, for years.
0: You know, I think I, I saw you incorporated into every batting practice. It's taking their daily vitamins yep. is the entertainment. And the so talk to us about what happens, you know, you practice all these things. It's like, will this work? And then it goes viral. What is that like for an organization that's focused on fun and entertainment to kind of get that reinforcement that it's enjoyed so much by so many people?
3: Yeah. Um, we have a great group of, of, of guys on both of our teams. We travel with two teams. And the, 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 the thing that I'm so impressed with all of them is they're so humble. And we play sold out shows everywhere we go. People are coming to our hotels. It's, it's like being in like the hottest rock band. And so we know that it works, but most importantly, our guys love that they're having this positive impact on these kids and they're, they're creating joy. Um, it's awesome when we see our guys show up on, on SportsCenter top 10 or something goes viral or a, a former big leaguer kind of acknowledges that we're doing some good things. That's just verifying that, um, we are athletes and, and we're doing good things at a, at a very high level. So, you know, it's a level of, uh, of accomplishment, but, um, our guys are so humble. It's not going to their heads after, you know, 60 plus games of sold out shows and, and being on every news media outlet. Um, our guys still show up every single day with, you know, the goal in mind to create a never forget moment for for a fan at that new city.
2: You have your own set of rules. Yeah. What's it like to go into a new stadium and, and have to explain those rules? Do you get a lot of people like wondering what's going on or how does it work?
3: Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine what it's like for a fan who's not really dialed into our rules, wondering what just happened. How come the bananas just scored one run? and the other team didn't make three outs and everybody's walking off the field. Because <laughs> the way we score the game is a little bit different. Um, we, we play every, um, every inning counts. So if the, if the away team scores three runs and the home team only scores one run, it's not three to one going into the next inning. It's one to nothing. Okay. Conversely, if the home team scores more than the the visiting team, it's a walk off and the inning's over and we swap sides. So uh, there's no doubt that there's like there is a little bit of a learning curve for for the new fan. Um, But everything we do from a rule standpoint is is all for the fans and the excitement and the, the, the enjoyment of the fans. We play with the two hour time limit. If a fan catches a foul ball, it's an out. So we get the fans involved. I mean, what's better than that? Um, I think you might've
2: just, I think you might've just answered my next question. What's your favorite one of the banana rolls?
3: I mean, yeah, I just gave it away If a fan catches a foul ball. It's an out when it happens, the crowd goes crazy. Uh, we bring them on the field. We announce them to the crowd. We have a running list of everybody who's caught a foul ball at one of our shows. Uh, if, 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 if a party, if, if the party animals are on defense and somebody catches a banana foul ball, they get booed like crazy. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun just to kind of, Hey man, that glove that you brought to the, to the field, you are a player and you can use it to make a legitimate out in a game. And in fact, in Kannapolis, the game ended on a fat, a fan catching a foul ball down the line. It ended with a bananas win.
0: You, you said something like, we, we want you to see something that you've never seen before when you come here. I saw it somewhere you try 20 to 25 new promotions every single game, knowing that that some won't hit. Uh, what's that like as a coach out there? knowing you, you're still trying to play baseball. But you've got such engagement with the fans in the entertainment side. I mean, you've got kids on the field taking taking batting practice during during different parts of the game. You've got oversized bats. Talk to us about the actual product on the field.
3: You know, there's such alignment between the baseball side that Tyler Gillum and I are on and the entertainment side. We 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 both understand and we mesh very very well. So all of those promotions and those 20 plus promotions that we try every game that comes mostly from the entertainment side and we have an amazing team of of of, of people on the entertainment side um, coming up with new ideas jesse cole coming up with new ideas every day and trying Um, we understand that if 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 we do the same thing over and over again it's going to become boring and people aren't going to come back so It's, it's similar to SNL and the writer's room where they're all sitting around and they're coming up with crazy ideas. Everybody's trying to plus it and figuring out how to carry it out on the field. And then we try it and, and some fall flat, but some absolutely crush. And when it crushes, we are the most excited for it because we're like, yeah, we did it. Um, And it's also great for the fans because if they've come to shows before, they'll see something different. That's really, really important. It's kind of like going to a rock band that you never know the set list you're going to get. Got to get some of the old hits, but you're also going to get some new ones and some variations. That's kind of what you have in a banana ball game, too. You're going to see something new every time.
2: You know, you talk about the rock band aspect of this. You now have you've become so popular that that major league players want to come play with you. We, you've had you've had one of our great stars from a World Series champion and Shane Victorino come. I've seen other times where you've had players that are sitting in the former players sitting in the stands, drinking a beer and coming out and pitching a game. What is it like to, to now have that your brand of baseball is now like a magnet to major league baseball players to kind of want come and just have fun?
3: Yeah, it it, it shows that what we're doing is very legitimate and, and 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 we're on the right path. And so when you have guys like Shane Victorino or Johnny Damon or Hunter Pence just joined us in Sacramento, wanting to be a part of a, us and, and showing up and 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 leaning into the entertainment, Um, that's really awesome. But it shows the world that, hey, you know what? You don't have to be, we're not just all dancing and antics. We play legitimate baseball because Johnny Damon, Hunter Pence, they're just not going to show up to dance. They're going to show up to play baseball. Um, We met with Tim Kirkchin when we were in West Palm and Tim, Tim said, you know, I love what you guys are doing, but if the baseball is not good, this does not work. So he watched that game, and it happened to be one of the greatest games uh, that that we've ever played. And after the game, I said, "Hey Tim, what'd you think?" And he's like, "The baseball's good. Keep keep going." And so that's all we need to hear. We just need to be um, to be verified, and uh, you know, from these legitimate baseball people, because they will tell their friends, and that will just help us continue on doing doing what we want for the fans
0: we talked about the fan side of it how do you scout future players that go in here or they're open? i mean jeff and i tried out years ago for the sixers g league team is it open tryouts that people can come or how do you find the next generation of bananas, bananas.
2: and when can we try out
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we used to hold open tryouts and the first two tours we did so and um our tryouts are unlike anything else we ask people to dress up in costumes and and try different things and it's crazy um Due to our success and popularity, we've had to limit that now to invite only.
0: Could could you just invite Jeff so he could wear a costume? He won't make the team anyway. So No, no, no. no, no. It'd be cool.
3: We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. But um, every city that we go to, we are holding tryouts. So um, if we see somebody in a city, whether it's Phoenix or Sacramento or Cooperstown, and they're in that locale um, and they kind of fit the bill, they played some college baseball, they played pro, they have a unique talent we'll bring them out to the, to the game and they'll work out pregame game with, with us. And we'll look at that, um, you know, for the future seasons. Also, we lean very heavily on our current players. Um, that's very important because our players know exactly what is required to play banana ball and play for the Savannah Bananas and so party animals or anybody. So they are our best marketer because they're able to authentically communicate what is, um, what this whole thing is about. And, 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 um, you know, we don't we don't want players where we have to convince them that this is a good thing. We want guys who are all in from the get go and, and want to be a great role model and want to play banana ball. And so, um, yeah, our players are great marketers. But, you know, like it also helps having 100 pence say, I got a guy who's right for you and, and big leaguers are sending us. So that's pretty cool.
2: You know, one of the things about especially when, when you're coaching kids is trying to impress upon them that this is still a game that they should still have fun and 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 travel baseball takes a lot of that out of kids what is it like for the players to come play for you and realize that they can get back to having fun i mean we're lucky we live we're in a city right now where if you look at what's going on with the phillies those players are having fun but you see so many players in the major leagues that do treat you want them to treat it as a career But at the same time, don't lose the fun aspect because that's what baseball is all about. What's it like when players come to you? Do they realize? Does it does it recharge them?
3: Yeah, we definitely see a reinvigorated player. Um, You know, again, like if if, if, it during the scouting process and the evaluation process, we make sure that we have we're in alignment with that player and that the player really, really knows and wants wants to be a part of this. And all too often we have players, very high level players, who um might be interested but also might want to still get into affiliate or or try to make it to the big leagues and what we tell them is go live out your dream and when you're ready to make the transformation to banana ball and what this whole thing is about then then come talk to us so um when our players get in the environment and they're around the fans and they start playing banana ball, um, it's just a herd mentality. And, 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 and you see a lot of smiles and, and and happy faces that said, they're not happy when they strike out. They're not happy when they lose. It's still very, very competitive because um, again, Tim Kirkson saying, if the baseball is not good, it doesn't work. So we need high level players, high level players are ultimate competitors. And so We never want them to lose the competitive spirit, but we also want them to keep the perspective about what this whole thing is about. And it is about having fun and showing that you can have fun on a baseball field and still play a very, very high level. So, you know, we have we have talks with guys from time to time when they start, you know, kind of getting down in that hole a little bit, but um, not too often because everybody's in alignment about what our mission is about um, creating, you know, happiness and fun and joy for all these fans. So,
0: all right, where do you guys go next? You've had banana land on ESPN plus you are sold out in stadium. I mean, there was a raffle to get into Trenton the other night. You, you like could not get tickets to the game and, and, you know, you have all the success on your third world tour. Where does this go for you with your next innovations?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And and a lot of people ask, you know, I I see us go into play bigger stadiums. Um, because we have a wait list of 800,000 people on our wanting to get tickets throughout the country. And so um, that's an indication to us that we have a lot more people we need to serve. So we need to play either more games or bigger venues so we can house them all. So, you know, there's talks to play at major league stadiums next year, and that's, uh, that's a whole nother challenge in and of itself. Um, there's talks about having a league, creating a banana ball league so we can have more teams going out into the country and and serving more people and then also going internationally you know my my dream is to go play in japan and and, because i know that this would resonate there um so those are kind of things that are being talked about and and uh we're gonna have our our 2024 draft our scheduled draft on october 5th um people should tune in because you're gonna learn about where we're coming and if we're coming to a city near you and more importantly what stadiums we're gonna be playing at so um, those are some of the things that are being discussed right now.
2: Adam, I gotta ask you, since we do have something else in common, which is you're you were a lawyer. Um, how how did you end up here from there? <laughs> Jeff might look to make a career. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. it's Tell me it's never too late.
3: <laughs> you know, and so I played baseball my, my whole entire life. Grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, loving the game. I learned everything at the College World Series. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to play college baseball for um, Fort Scott Junior College and also then George Mason University. I had a career ending injury. I couldn't throw anymore. So, you know, real life hit me pretty, pretty quickly. Um, Jerry Maguire was out in the movie theaters sometime around there. And I was like, you know what? I want to be a sports agent. So I went to law school thinking that that was the right path for me. It wasn't, I knew it right away when I was in law school that this isn't for me, but you know, I I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to quit. I made the commitment to it. And then I practiced law for about 10 years, labor and employment. And, and, um, I I don't want to, I tell everybody I hated every second of it, but I just learned a lot about the profession that I didn't like. And um, when I was ready to kind of move on, I was like, "What's next? Am I going to go teach? Am I going to go, you know, coach baseball?" Um, I was lucky enough to meet up with some old friends who said, "Hey, just come come work with some baseball players in the cage and see how you like it." And um, coming from a a family of educators, uh, you know, I started teaching and I really loved it. I really loved working with kids and seeing improvement, and that led me to starting uh, the travel baseball program for the New York Bulldogs, connected with the Bulldog Ball Club. We did all of our programming in Central Park. So there's no better office than Central Park. Um, and it led me to the bananas. A good friend of mine, Nate Fish, uh, he was with Team Israel and he's coached uh, the WBC teams and the Olympic team with Team Israel. Um, he got connected with the, the bananas and he, and he brought me along as an assistant coach three years. Um, I had a unique skill set from a baseball and a business sense that led me to being valuable for the corporation and, and, and the company. And so they kept me here long. And, and so now that's why I'm kind of helping out with the the business of uh, business of baseball while also coaching. And so, you know, here I am, it's hands down the greatest job I could ever dream of, including the big leagues. I have friends who have coached in the big leagues. Um, they are, uh, jealous of me and what I'm doing. And so, you know, I landed where exactly, uh, where, where I should have landed. It just took me 48 years of my life to get here, but, uh, but here I am and I'm, I'm not going anywhere.
2: Oh, I'm jealous of those jerseys, by the way. <laughs> They're <laughs> iconic, right? Definitely they are, they are great. The white one's even better. Those are great. The white jerseys.
3: ones, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was just talking to our president, Jared Orton. And I said, all right, there's two jerseys that are iconic in my mind. One is the Yankee Prince stripe, and I'm sorry, but then mm-hmm. the two is the yellow bananas. Because if you see a yellow Jersey in the wild, um, it's got to mean one thing and it's bananas. Uh, whenever I wear any bananas gear anywhere in the country, I get picked out and they're like, bananas, go bananas. And so I, I think the yellow jerseys are iconic. Uh white looks clean, but everybody, everybody wears white. Nobody wears yellow. You're a, right. That one stands
0: out. Jeff's a traditionalist. You'll you'll <laughs> see that. Uh look, we can't thank you enough for the time, Coach Vero. We can't we look forward to seeing how it continues to grow. Jeff and I will watch the 2024 draft. I hope you're coming back to the area so we can catch it for ourselves next time. Thanks so much for the time. And we hope to keep in touch with you.
3: Hey, I appreciate you guys. And, you know, you can always watch all games live on YouTube TV for free. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the best way for you guys to, to stay in touch with us, but thanks for having me on guys. And uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight and we'll, we'll see you in a city near you. Good luck coach. Thanks a lot guys. This is Dan Baker, public address voice of the Philadelphia Phillies. And you're listening to the Heart of Sports with Jeff
0: Cohen and Jason Springer. Not only did we have fun talking to Coach Barron, but they've continued to grow. I mentioned it to, to Jeff on a previous show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Bananas 2023 tour went from California to Maine, drew more than 550,000 fans, had a million name ticket waiting list. And boosted their TikTok following to more than 7.6 million people, which is double last year's total and larger than Major League Baseball speed itself. All right, they're not going to really rest on their laurels now as we look into 2024 when we come back with you next week. They've got bigger plans. They've got over 2 million entries already for their lottery list. I am one of them because my, my kids have decided that they are interested in it now and think it's really cool, and so are their friends. Uh, ironically, I had people reach out to see if we had a good contact there after the interview that we did, and my answer was, no, fill out the lottery, just like I did. Uh, some places, they're going to Major League Ballparks. They've got more than 100,000 lottery entrants for tickets in stadiums that barely have those seats. If you look at what they're doing for Minute Maid Park in Houston, they had nearly 160,000 entries for 40 1,000 seat stadium Fenway Park they're going to play that's just under 38,000 seats they've got 145,000 entries uh, I had a friend right after the tickets went live send it to me the tickets were already on the secondary market for standing room only where there were clearly no tickets already for hundreds of dollars so it's amazing to see what they've done and they're getting even more creative. And, you know, we've talked about bringing in different fan bases and marketing to different people. We talked about it in that interview. They start their world tour on February 8th. They're going to finish it at sea with their banana land at sea where they have a cruise right after they play at the Marlins Stadium in Miami, a four-night trip around the Bahamas with their different players. They're playing in Philly, Houston, Boston, D.C., Cleveland, and the Marlins major league stadiums. It doesn't... Their growth seems like it's only going to continue to occur. They're going to add more teams to the league. And it's like we talked about with with Coach They're They're not trying to change the game, but they're trying to bring the fun in the game out. Now, how much baseball on the major league level or the minor league level adopts any of these rules. I mean, the, the 11th rule for the 2025 tour they've added from their 10 banana ball rules is one time a game, a team can send up any batter in the lineup to hit any spot. I don't think we're ever going to see that in baseball. But if you would have told us six, seven years ago when we were starting this show that there would be a pitch clock in baseball at the major league level, I don't know that Jeff would have bought that explanation of what was going on. So we'll see. I mean, we talked about it last week. We we were airing our grievances, and the pitch clock wasn't a grievance for Jeff anymore. It wasn't a grievance for me. We just kind of accepted it. It's more of a grievance for Craig Kimball and Aaron Nola. We'll see what they end up doing if they come around and adjust. But we've got some fun times coming ahead in 24. could be a little rocky. We'll see what happens with some of these teams. We talked with Sam Carcidi last week. The Flyers are playing better hockey on the ice. They're more interesting. Let's see what they end up doing at the trade deadline you know, how much they go further in or whether they follow that plan to keep trying to build. The Sixers, I still think they're going to make a big trade in 2024 as we start the new year. I don't think that's going to be the end of it because Maury's got assets now. And that's what he likes to do. He likes to make moves. He's got draft picks. He's got guys on expiring contracts. And I don't think that Tobias Harris, as much as they want him to be, is going to be that third star on this team. I think they're going to go look to find a third star. You know, you talk about the Phillies, we'll see what they come back with. They haven't done much yet this offseason. Dombrowski's got to get to work. Looks like they're going to try to extend Wheeler now after locking in Nola. The Union, they're going to have a different team on the field potentially next year when we join you as they start up in February. And then you got the Eagles, which who knows what they are. They're 11-4 and four going into this week. They could be as high as first in the NFC. They could be as low as fourth or fifth, depending on what happens in these final games. Is it coaching? Is it players? Even when they win, it seems like there's lots of questions and concerns. For us in sports radio, it makes it great. It means there's going to be a lot to talk about. I'm excited to be able to continue to join you. Jeff is excited to be able to continue to join you. We look forward to talking to you next year. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next week to help you start
3: your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.